Okay, welcome to the Cava Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, Russia's war on Ukraine continues with no let up, and it's clear the world's political and military landscape is changing. We'll talk with two great guests about what it all means for naval warfare, and also take a look at the just-approved 2022 defense spending bill. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. In war news, the Russian amphibious group that had appeared poised to land in or near the port of Odessa has not yet done so. The group of about eight ships, which are likely combat loaded with troops and vehicles, has been at sea for about three weeks, and the combat effectiveness of any troops on board is likely to be highly degraded after so much time in cramped conditions. The Russian missile corvette Vasily Baikov reportedly was hit by Ukrainian forces and set on fire March 7th off Odessa. On March 8th, the Ukrainian patrol boat Sloviansk was reported sunk. That ship is the former U.S. Coast Guard Island-class cutter Cushing, transferred to Ukraine in 2018. In the Mediterranean Sea, Russian naval forces are concentrated in the eastern med off the Syrian coast, where Russia has a small naval base at Tartus. Russian naval ships have been barred from entering a number of ports in the region, and it does not appear that Russia has yet challenged Turkey's ban on the passage of belligerent nation warships through the Turkish Straits that link the Mediterranean with the Black Sea. Turkey invoked the 1936 Montreux Convention specifically to bar passage to belligerents, in this case Russia and Ukraine, notably not barring, barring passage to NATO warships. Turkey, of course, is a NATO member. The British aircraft carrier HMS Prince of Wales left the Portsmouth Naval Base March 7th to act as a flagship in the large NATO exercise Cold Response running off Norway. More than 35,000 military personnel from 28 nations are taking part in the large-scale exercise. Prince of Wales will lead the NATO Maritime High Readiness Force, and the maneuvers mark the first time one of the two Queen Elizabeth-class carriers has operated in the Arctic. The U.S. carrier Harry S. Truman was to have taken part in cold response, but the ship continues to operate in the Mediterranean Sea with Francis Charles de Gaulle. Congress on March 10th agreed to an omnibus spending bill for fiscal 22 that includes $728.5 billion for defense spending, up nearly 5% from 2021. Among the highlights for the Navy are funding for two attack submarines, two destroyers, a frigate, an expeditionary sea-based ship, and two expeditionary fast transports, an ocean surveillance ship, and two salvage and towing ships. The bill also includes significant funding for the Columbia-class ballistic missile submarine program and incremental funding for two aircraft carriers, although funding funding was reduced for efforts to develop the new DDGX destroyer. Congress also added 12 FA-18 Super Hornet strike fighters that the Navy did not request, and the bill took away money the Navy was going to use to decommission three littoral combat ships, which will now remain in service, allowing the decommissioning of only one LCS, the Coronado. There seem to be no restrictions to the Navy's plans to decommission seven cruisers and place them in reserve. President Biden was expected to quickly sign the bill into law. The funding comes nearly six months into the current fiscal year, which began October 1st. The U.S. Navy's Biennial Arctic Ice Exercise, or ISEX, kicked off March 4th in the Beaufort Sea. U.S. submarines Illinois and Pasadena are taking part, along with personnel and aircraft from Canada and the United Kingdom. 
The three-week exercise is a key element for the U.S. to demonstrate Arctic capabilities, including a very public display of submarines operating north of the Arctic Circle. And Japan on March 9th commissioned the submarine Taige, first of the new 29 SS class designed from the outset with lithium-ion batteries and to accommodate women crew members. The subs built at the rate of one per year are considered among the world's most advanced non-nuclear powered submarines. And that's a look at just some of the naval news from this week. All right, switching to the discussion portion of our podcast, we are very lucky to be joined by two former guests and two friends of the podcast, Brian McGrath and Jerry Hendricks. Brian is the managing director of the Ferry Bridge Group, a consultancy specializing in naval and national security issues. He is a retired naval officer who spent 21 years on active duty, including a tour in command of USS Bulkley, a guided missile destroyer home ported in Norfolk, Virginia. Jerry Hendricks is a retired Navy captain and currently a senior fellow at the Sagamore Institute. He is also the author of To Provide and Maintain a Navy. It is so great to have you both back. Brian and Jerry, thank you again for joining us. As we mentioned it at the top of our show, and as we kind of did our quick round um, the international uh, maritime scene, uh, there's a lot going on, both in the maritime world and in the broader geopolitical world. Let's start with Ukraine um, and then move to kind of bigger lessons learned for Taiwan, and then we can talk budget and other things. But uh, Jerry, I'll start with you, and then Brian will go to you. Um, what are you seeing out, out of the two weeks or so of uh, of kinetic operations in Ukraine that um, either surprised you or reinforced what you already thought? I, I think the things that I'm seeing is that the the two day campaign is now at two weeks, and it's not getting any better. In fact, Putin is looking for. Uh, active ways of expanding the campaign to bring others in to refocus his story. Uh, he's getting rid of uh, some senior leadership and the Ukrainians are getting rid of still more. Apparently we're up to three two-star generals have been killed, uh, confirmed in Ukraine. Uh, logistics matter. Uh, that's an important thing. The idea of uh, getting bogged down and losing contact with your supply train. Uh, I've been genuinely uh, surprised, and I, I guess I shouldn't have been if I really had, had put my thinking cap on, uh, about how little um, the naval power has had come to play down in the Black Sea. Uh, there's about eight amphibs that are, are waiting and still waiting off from Odessa that have not moved. There's been one amphibious landing in support of the assault on Maripol. But other than that, uh, the Russian Navy has taken a loss of a, of a coastal patrol boat uh, but really hasn't added uh, to the scenario that much. Brian? Oh, I can hardly improve on that. Um, I, th I think that I am not surprised that the naval power has not been used more extensively. Um, I, I just don't see the Black Sea uh, as, a, as a place to operate if you wish to keep something limited and contained because once you begin to use the Black Sea as a, as a maneuver space, you start to bring in a lot of other interested parties. Um, and I don't think the Russians were interested in that. So for now, I think that's a, that's a reserve force uh, for them. I think the interesting, the, some of the interesting stuff is happening in the Eastern Med uh, uh, off of Syria 
uh, and the degree to which uh, the Russians are warily watching us and we are warily watching them is interesting to me. Uh, I am not a land war expert. I'm only barely cognizant of how uh, maritime war works. Uh, but I am surprised at the competence or lack thereof that it appears that the Russians are showing. Um, I, I just don't, I don't get, I don't, I keep thinking they must be smarter and better than this uh, because that's what I've been told for so long. Um, uh, and they keep underwhelming me and, 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 uh, and not meeting the target. Uh, I'm surprised by the pluckiness of the Ukrainians. I am uh, uh, heartened by the um, lesson of uh, a stitch in time saves nine and the degree to which there were uh, active weapons programs sending uh, important munitions into Ukraine before this thing blew up was definitely a smart idea. I think that about covers it. It's also kind of interesting that, I mean, the, the Russian naval, naval contribution has been largely, seems to be, uh, caliber missiles. Uh, launching cruise missiles and most of their combatants, including the very, the, the smaller patrol corvettes, patrol boats, if you, if you will, but under un, around a thousand tons, even uh, carry caliber missiles. And there've been quite a few that have been seen and videoed and been posted. Um, one can only presume that they're using up a great deal of their inventory of caliber weapons. The, the, the caliber NK missile is a uh, pretty effective weapon that has a, a range of uh, about 900 or so kilometers. Um, it's carried by a ton of uh, small craft, like I said, and that's that seems to be what they're doing. Even even the the one that was um, at least hit off Odessa uh, was launching caliber missiles. So you may be following this more closely than I am, but my my sense was that there's probably been, that there have been probably fewer than one destroyer's worth of uh, sea launched cruise missiles uh, have been used in that theater. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard that too, but I'm, 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 I'm not so sure. I mean, if, if you just go by, okay. All right. I mean, most of the videos that I've seen of missiles going in have been caliber missiles, things that look an awful lot like a caliber missile. I've probably seen a dozen different videos and I'm not spending my entire life scouring the internet looking for such things. If that's, if that's a percentage, then um, they're using a lot more than that. So it's just, uh, I, th I think they probably are using up a, a lot of them. There's not, I don't see any indications they're not. Okay. But the group that, the, the, the amphibious group that has been in the Western part of the Black Sea that everybody thought was gonna go into Odessa um, that's about eight ships, like you said. Uh, they're not, I presume they're combat loaded. They're 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 loaded up for a military um, assault. Uh, the troops out there have been on those ships for at least three weeks. At least those ships are not designed to keep a lot of people on board for that long at all. Uh, that cannot be. There's no way that can be an effective force right now. Uh, it and they're they're kind of going back and forth between going off Odessa. And then going back closer to Sevastopol and back and forth, and the the, the Ukrainians seem to have fortified the sea side of Odessa pretty effectively. At least at this point, there are mines 
in the sea. There are mines on land. Um, they're more or less ready. So I don't know if that if that's going to come off at all. And the Russians, Rus Russians do not practice contested amphibious assaults. They don't they don't do D-Day and yep. Iwo Jima. You know they they just they they need a more benign environment. And I think when when they didn't go in right at the start, um, they they lost the initiative there. Yeah, the the thing I'm looking at, and I I had not taken a close look at the Odessa scenario until just you know three or four days ago and you know there's there's about 800 yards of good beach and then it's all pretty bad uh on either side of that uh then that would be an assault into a dense urban environment and the russians are not doing well in dense urban environments right now and then when you get to the other side it's wet it's marshy the there's only two prepared roads and then there's a whole bunch of riverlets that break up the coast there that keeps you sort of funneled. You, there's not a lot of um, horizontal movement. You, you have to attack directly into the country um, and you're confined by water. Uh, I don't expect to see an amphibious assault now after sort of expecting it for a long period of time. The more I look at it, and here's the other thing, since the Turks stepped in, and this goes to Brian's point, that anything that happens in the Black Sea brings in a lot of other people. The Turks have stepped in and said, this is a war. And under the terms of the treaty, um, you know, we are now closing the, the straits, the Dardanelles and the Bosphorus, to warship transit. So if any of those ships pop back out, they're not going back in. Now, supply ships, I guess, could go in. But the fact is, is I think the Russian Navy in the Black Sea is on a clock now. I, I think you're right. And of course, you know, Erdogan, he, so he's invoked the Montreux Convention about belligerence. That does not include NATO. So nominally, NATO ships are still free to make that Turkish Straits passage. And the Russians so far don't seem to have challenged this. It will become an issue later on. They have a number of ships that are, as Brian said, off, um, off the eastern, in, in the eastern Med, uh, off the Syrian coast. And some of those ships are from out of area. They're going to need some assistance beyond whatever Tartus can provide. The Tartus is a small base in Syria. And their Russians are being closed to a lot of other ports or refu refusing them entry. So they're having a lot of, they're having their own logistic issues. That, that force is not going to get stronger. Meanwhile, the, the Charles de Gaulle and the Harry S. Truman, the aircraft carriers, are back operating together um, in the Ionian Sea area. Uh, for whatever that's worth. And I think the, 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 the U.S. is going out of its way right now to not play a lot of that up. So let's, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, with those lessons and with those observations in mind, let's kind of put this in a broader context um, of thinking about China and Taiwan. I, I think a year ago, maybe two years ago, we would have thought that the, the more likely conflict that we would have seen or as likely a conflict that we would have seen would have been a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Um, what have you learned from Ukraine um, that has either clarified or changed your, your thinking on um, how we should you know, deter or prepare for a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan? Brian, we'll start with you. I sort of foreshadowed this answer in my previous answer, and that is I think we should be doing everything we can with our friends in Taiwan to make them um, a more difficult objective. Uh, we should 
uh, we should be providing and and our friends should be providing Taiwan with uh, weapons that they want and that we feel uh, are reasonable and rational for the war fighting scenario. I, you know, they, they wanted diesel submarines for a long time. I always thought that was silly. I'm glad we sort of slow rolled them on that. I hope that we provide them with stuff that would be useful for stopping a large, uh, uh, a several wave deep amphibious invasion, including um, a, a huge rocket barrage. That's what we ought to be helping them to survive and to, and to make it through. Uh, even as we then uh, uh, purportedly help defend them by helping to take out the, uh, the invasion force. Uh, it's all about preparation. It's all about getting stuff there now and, and starting to make the target harder. And that's what I think we've, we've learned from Ukraine. Uh, and I hope we put it to work in Taiwan. Jerry, over to you. Yeah, so I, uh, again, hard to improve upon that. I would I would just ask uh, for uh, that we look at anti-ship cruise missiles and that we, we give them the best. In fact, you know, I'm not entirely satisfied with our inventory of anti-ship cruise missiles. And so I'd like to see improvements and that whatever we develop, that we, we look at giving them for shore launched uh, capability of course, mines, uh, you know, uh, if Taiwan's not investing heavily in mines uh, right now in their, in their major landing areas, um, then, uh, then they need to do that. And then, you know, these things that the Ukrainians are using so effectively, javelins and stingers and, and so on, uh, we're hopefully that we're sending those types of things so that if any Chinese forces do make it ashore, uh, that they would meet with resistance. The thing there that's the wild card is whether uh, Taiwan will have the equivalent of a Zelensky and a popular resistance. You know, the Taiwan population is pretty evenly divided uh, between those who are sort of uh, really uh, viewing or leaning towards independence and then the, the other party, which really wants greater cooperation with China. And in fact, you know, has some real problems with the degree of independence movement within it. And the question is, is, you know, who will, who will be in place on the, the day that uh, the big push goes? Uh, that being said, I think the U.S. Navy out of this, uh, from its standpoint, you know, more emphasis on submarines, what could be there early in this battle, because uh, I don't see the surface force coming in uh, very quickly until some other things have been attrited. So what is our balance of forces out there and, and making sure that we make improvements with our submarine force, new torpedoes, better missiles, and so on going forward. Uh, but those, I think that's what I've kind of learned. Now, the one thing that I, I think that Xi uh, Jinping has sort of stepped back now, and he's doing a reassessment. Um, if, if he had a calculus that he was going to go when Putin went, because you know we would be distracted uh, I think that because of what's happening in Ukraine, the G's taking a step back now to reassess because coming up with his uh, you know, attempt to be elected for his third term, uh, he cannot afford a failure like uh, Vladimir Putin is suffering right now. Uh, that's not to say that he, he won't go or that he's still not considering it. But I think he and the Chinese, you know, who, uh, uh, to quote the Admiral in the hunt for Red October, don't get up in the morning without a plan. I think they're stepping back right now to figure out that plan and what their level of confidence is. 
Is that the exact quote, Jerry? It's not quite the exact quote, is it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's not the exact quote, but uh, Fred Thompson was a, a brilliant <laughs> actor, and I, I paraphrase him. <laughs> All right. Um, let's uh, shift gears a little bit um, in, in the little time we have left and talk to the budget. The House and the Senate has passed the omnibus spending bill, which combines uh, most of the government's spending bills into one massive, enormous omnibus appropriations bill, which is, a, as we all know, a bad way to do business. Nevertheless, uh, Brian, have you had a chance to look at this at all and, and, uh, and, and, and see what's in there? A little bit. Uh, it, it, it took the feckless and, and uh, insufficient president's budget of fiscal year 22, and it added some $25 billion dollars uh, to it, um, uh, and and it and it achieved the sort of objectives that we knew were coming. Right, we got a second destroyer, we got a few more uh, super hornets. Generally, stuff to to plug some holes that were in the pre-Ukraine insufficient to the Chinese threat president's budget that was submitted in the spring. Um, so the the budget, to the extent that we can call it that, that gets passed now, um, expresses a time late expression of the Congress on what the minimum required is for 23. And I think what we're going to see from the Department of Defense and its uh, 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 client, the Navy, is going to be essentially the what just got passed last night and the, and the day before coming forward again, that those level, that level of funding, it's not going to reflect uh, a, a potential wider European war. It's not going to reflect lessons learned about pouring more money into Taiwan readiness and to uh, Western Pacific uh, readiness of the Navy. Um, we're, the, 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 uh, the, con the Congress wants the administration to lead the target the administration does not want to lead the target and they keep firing behind the target and they're just not talking to each other. And I, and I expect there's going to be a considerable amount of uh, frustration and tension between the Hill and the white house in the months to come. Jerry. Yeah. So I, you know, uh, again, 5.6% year over year growth, um, not enough to keep up with inflation. Although uh, Mike McCord made the point, uh, in his public statement this week that, uh, that they don't use the CPI uh, in doing their calculations on how much they need to grow. They use a different index. Um, I'm, you know, I was pleased you know, that, to see that we were 13 ships, that we got a second DDG, um, that we were you know, five ships above what the administration had asked for. That was good. I, I like the increase in the research and development account. Uh, that was good. Uh, we need to be able to grow capacity at the same time as we improve capability, and this begins, but it's, it's nowhere near where we need to be. Uh, you know, my, my point that I will be making and writing about soon is, you know, we should be looking at growing as much as we can, given, you know, the obvious threat. Russia is sort of now the demonstrated threat that these authoritarian powers will do bad stuff. And so, you know, we're here at like 3.68% of GDP. We ought to be looking at a 4.0 of GDP with a plan to grow to 4.5 so that we could actually grow capacity and modernize at the same time. We, we, the administration is presenting us as it's a choice. 
that we can either modernize or we can grow. And so therefore we must sacrifice infrastructure in order to grow. But the one thing I did take away from everyone this week is that uh, the older infrastructure is dragging us down. I, the thing that I was struck in public statements today by administration officials is apparently it's not that the Ticonderogas are too expensive now to maintain, they're just too unsafe to operate anymore. And so we've moved from a conversation about age and maintenance to um, uh, safety, um, but there was still no answer to what are you gonna do about your VLS tube inventory, uh, which was a, a point that I asked and, and got no answer on. So on the cruisers, just just real quick here, not, not, not to belabor it, but number one, so, so the Navy um, is planning on decommissioning seven cruisers this year. Um, there are five cruisers that have not been in service for some years that have not been effective VLS tubes that have not been deployable assets that are in the process of being refitted, refurbished and modernized and upgraded and are coming back. So it's not necessarily a loss of seven from the overall total. It's a loss of seven and you get five back. So it actually is down. You're actually down two. the, um, and this is a really convoluted issue that I'm not going to go into at the moment but um that is that's the actual addition that that's the arithmetic um so those vls tubes yeah you're losing you, you're losing two ships of that overall the navy has spent an awful lot of money to get its older cruisers to be able to deploy one or two years one or, i'm sorry one or two deployments before they decommission they're very expensive they're they're in lousy shape um it would cost an awful lot um, to refurbish them. And it's, you know, I think the Navy has a well, pretty good, wait, wait a minute. I think the Navy has a decent argument on it. And I think Congress agrees. And there's nothing in the appropriations bill that I can see that prevents the Navy from decommissioning those cruisers. They're going to go ahead with it. Uh, there was one of the congressmen, uh, I think uh, Whitman, in a public statement this week, said that they were actively trying to block at least some of those. Right. But, but the, the other point, too, to go to your, your point about technology, um, the spy one, a spy one B radars, uh, we are maxed out. And so those, they, there's, there's an argument there that should be accepted. The, the problem is, is the failure to plan the succession plan for the capacity, you know, greener years ago talked about, it's not platforms, it's payloads. Well, that payload is going away. If we look at the overall VLS tube inventory across 30 year plan, we we've got to come up with a solution. No, you're right. And they, they had a plan. The plan was a replacement cruiser called CGX and they canceled it and they kind of kind of, kind of mealied that along. But in any case, I think the, I think Congress is going to go along with the cruiser decommissionings. Uh, what they did not go along with was the Navy's plan to decommission four littoral combat ships in this current fiscal year. They're all supposed to go away actually by March 31st, this, this current March 31st. Um, three of them, Congress has said, you have to keep. So they're going to let one, the Coronado LCS-4, go. The other three they're going to keep. And, of course, we've heard all these stories about the 2023 budget. Uh, Navy wants to decom any number, pick it, from some to half to all of the Freedom Class LCSs. I, I think that's going to be an absolute no-go. That's going to be dead on arrival, um, and especially based on what Congress is just doing now based on these, on these four ships. I'd like to um, just correct a little bit of your of the words you used. What's that? I don't think the Navy wants to do these things. Um, 
I think the Navy is doing these things because they're getting handed a steaming pile of garbage uh, with respect to um, budget controls and uh, accounting tricks such as Jerry discussed earlier, which is uh, picking and choosing of your inflation index in a way that, I mean, the, the OSD is happy for the Navy to build more ships. Um, they just have to pay for it out of the money OSD gives them. Uh, and that money is insufficient. Uh, so the Navy has to has to find the money. And I, I, I don't think there's any, I, I really don't think there's a whole lot of uh, happiness in the cuts that they're and the decommissionings that they're making. They're just faced with a lot of bad choices. So how, before we go, I'll, I'll ask both of, both of you as kind of my last question. What advice um, would you give the Navy in terms of how they thread the needle through their public messaging in terms of, um, you know, being in line, somewhat in line with this idea of shedding um, today's capability to be able to afford tomorrow's, but still dealing with a very different Europe, uh, a potentially different um, Asia than it was a year ago when, uh, you, you know, when, when these budgets, uh, when this budget process began. Where does the CNO, where does the secretary need to be in their messaging to be able to be um, the advocates for the sea power we need for both today and tomorrow. Jerry, we'll start with you, and then Brian will let you have the last word. I'll, I'll use I'll use the the Secnav's uh, framing where he talked about he doesn't think that the quote unquote thirty year plan is useful as a tool. He really thinks of it as as three frames: the near term frame, the next ten years. Uh, the midterm frame, which he views as a transitional frame, and then the, the last 10 years would be the Navy that we need, the thing that we need to transition to. The idea is how to hold firm with uh, combat readiness and capacity in the near term. What I, what I, what I believe or, or think is that uh, the Davidson window threat, um, and then lay down that plan of transition in that second frame where I think DDGX comes into play and then migrate to the Navy that we really need, which in my mind is, is the high-low mix with, uh, with uh, you know, more things like frigates and, and fast attack submarines with missiles. So, you know, how do we make that transition? So that, that's how I'm viewing this is hold firm in the near term uh, with uh, the ability to reject Chinese aggression, but begin that uh, migration to what comes next. I'd like to see the Navy, and this is uh, one of the reasons that I am not a senior administration official in any political party. Um, uh, I would like to see the Navy state the requirement, state it confidently, Say, this is what we believe we need based on what you're telling us we need to do. Here it is. Um, if you can't fund it, then uh, then uh, we will do this. But th we're not going to change the requirement. We're not going to use resources available as uh, the number one uh, planning factor in what we are going to do. Um, I, I am tired of that. I've seen it for too long. I've seen the Navy negotiate with itself. I watch our friends in the Marine Corps do nothing of the sort. They, they, have, they have proudly for you know, decades said, this is what we need. Great, if you're not gonna give us the money, that's fine. We're not gonna change our minds. And I'd like to see the Navy continue to do that. I think the CNO kind of got off on the right foot. 
at West a couple of weeks ago when he laid out a 500 ship Navy uh, broadly understood. Um, because I think, again, OSD is happy to let him have that. They're just not going to give him another red cent to do it. So he needs to keep saying, this is what we need. This is what we need. And, and, and he said that again uh, this week. And, and you're right. You know, I think the CNO has created that number. He's given the, the, the subcategories of what types of ships are within that number. And he says that's where the threat demands. And as long as he continues to stand on that, you know, that gives people like us a chance to go out and talk about it. Because this is like when Greener let it slip that he thought the real number was 440 back in, I think, 2012 or 2014 in front of the Hask. We need these numbers from leadership. And you're right. Let them, you know, hey, if Congress doesn't want to fund it or the administration doesn't back, it's fine. But it's the up to the uniforms to say what the threat environment demands. And then we just go from there. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there for now. Uh, Jerry Hendricks, Brian McGrath, thank you very much for joining us. I uh, hope you'll come back and share more insights on Ukraine, on uh, the South China Sea, and where the Navy needs to make uh, their, their investments. Uh, thank you again, uh, and we'll, uh, we'll chat soon. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. It's time for Squawk Box. And Mr. Cavus thanks Congress for doing their job. Ooh. All right. I'll get this over with quick. Sometimes... Congress is wise. Okay, I know. Don't get too excited just yet. But deep inside the huge omnibus spending bill just passed by both houses of Congress is a provision denying the Navy permission to decommission three of the four littoral combat ships the service wants to throw away. They can get rid of one, the Coronado, but the other three have to remain in service, Congress said. That's a sentiment that bodes ill for strongly rumored Pentagon plans to ask for many more LCSs to throw away in the next budget request, expected to be submitted in a few weeks. It might seem at the moment that any move to get rid of more LCSs will meet with widespread congressional opposition, House and Senate appropriators and authorizers, Democrats and Republicans, and such a request would be dead on arrival, especially, especially as Russia's war on Ukraine is prompting much more concern on defense issues. On the flip side of Navy plans to divest itself of older systems is its plan to decommission seven cruisers between now and the end of September. There have been strong calls from some corners in Congress to keep the ships, but the truth is they're all in increasingly bad shape and have reached the end of their service lives. Actually, most of them were already beyond it. Yes, they could be repaired, but like an older car that keeps breaking down, it's likely not worth it. There are also five cruisers that have been out of service for some years, all now in the process of being brought back. The net result will be the Navy, well, that the Navy will be down seven ships, up five, with a net loss of two, not seven. Congress has not stipulated the seven cruisers must be kept, and the funding bill has no money to run them, essentially clearing the way for the Navy to decommission them. The LCSs, while certainly flawed, are all relatively new ships with thousands of miles ahead of them, and I know the many LCS critics don't want to hear this, the fleet is getting more and more effective at finding good uses for them. The cruisers are old, have been around for decades, and it's time to move on. So once again, good for Congress. Just don't get that used to hearing it. Wow, that's just hard to hear, Chris. You're right. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. 
And I'm Chris Cavis. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Hey.